0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With only about five months or so to go to the US presidential election, the focus seems to be remaining very firmly on whether the current incumbent, Donald Trump, will actually succeed in his attempt to be re-elected. But what if, despite all the fuss around him, Trump is as much a symptom of a broader political and economic system which has been rigged to benefit a tiny minority of the rich and powerful in a conspiracy against the rest of the American population. That is the general thesis of the system, who rigged it, how to fix it, by Robert Reich, who's a distinguished academic and author and who also served as Secretary of Labour in the first term of the Clinton administration. Robert Reich, you're very welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me, Hugh.
0: Um, I wanted to jump straight into the book, if you don't mind, into one of the central threads of it, I suppose. Um, the opening sequence of it and at the close as well is sort of structured as a letter to somebody called Jamie Diamond. I suspect a lot of our listeners won't know who Jamie Diamond is. Maybe you could tell you, tell us who he is and why you addressed the book to him in that
1: way. Well, most Americans have no idea who Jamie Dimon is, which is part of the problem. Uh, Jamie Dimon is one of the most powerful people in the United States. He is the CEO, the chief executive officer of the biggest bank in America, one of the biggest banks in the world called J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, He's also chairman of an organization called the Business Roundtable, uh, which is a collection of CEOs of the Largest most formidable uh, richest companies uh, in the united states headquartered in the united states. They are all global companies uh, and uh, I uh, Really entered the book uh, or began writing the book as a response to jamie diamond uh, Because he called me one day a few years ago. He was angry about something I had written uh, And spent 20 minutes on the phone just just uh, criticizing me and yelling at me And finally, when I got a word in edgewise, I explained to him why I was so concerned about what he and other people like him were doing. Uh, And, uh, well, I decided that there was no way I was getting anywhere on the phone with him at all. And so I just put it into a book. And what are they doing? Uh, They are acting as oligarchs through history have always acted. I mean, oligarchy is a good old ancient Greek word uh, standing for a society in which Uh, Relatively few people have most of the wealth and all of the power Uh, and Because of that nexus between wealth and power and because there are a relatively small number of people uh, They actually end up undermining both economies and democracies Uh, They can't be sustained uh, very very long Uh, we tend to only think about Russia as an oligarchy these days, but Actually, uh, in many respects, the United States is coming to represent uh, an oligarchy as well because wealth and power uh, have found their ways into a collection, a very small collection of people's hands, um, and Jamie Dimon would be one of them.
0: Now, we've had Wall Street titans for for a long time, for, for well over a century. In what way does what Jamie Dimon does and how he goes about his business, in what way does it differ, say, from his equivalent from 40 or 50 years ago?
1: Uh, the difference, the biggest difference, is that 40 or 50 years ago, uh, finance, Wall Street, was pretty boring. Uh, it was a f- basically taking in money and uh, and lending it out. Uh, it didn't have the overwhelming power over the economy and over politics that it has come to have. Uh, and it's not just finance. I would say that uh, the, the, the heads of the biggest companies in the United States 50 years ago, uh, not only did they not earn uh, nearly as much money relative to the median wage uh, as they earn now, but and they also didn't have the political power they now have. 50 years ago, uh, there was not that much money, big money, in American politics. 50 years ago, there were labor unions that countervailed the power of big corporations. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, we had a country in which I would say the middle class was was expanding, was growing very, very rapidly. Most people could be uh, sure that uh, they and their children would be doing better over time, uh, and their children would be do better would do better than they were doing. Uh, all of that has changed over the last fifty years. Uh, now, with the oligarchy in charge, uh, we have uh, extraordinary inequality of income. And wealth and political power, uh, the most unequal of all advanced nations. Uh, We also have a great deal of corruption, big money getting favors uh, by politicians and by uh, others who have been appointed by politicians, uh, favors that enable big money to do even better, uh, to distort the market, to change the rules of the market. Uh, We also have a democracy that is no longer uh, functioning for average working people uh, and an economy that is no longer functioning for average working people. Even before the pandemic, we saw these trends. Uh, These trends were partly responsible for the election of Donald Trump by many people who were so cynical, so angry, so uh, anxious and dissatisfied with uh, what had happened and their plight working harder than ever but getting nowhere that they decided to elect someone who was and still is a demagogue
0: will definitely come to come to donald Trump, but I'm just trying to dig into the there, there's a moment in the book when you talk about i think you're actually you're, you're you're writing about the possibility for for progress and for political change, and I think it's very important to say that this is a this is a book about about wealth but it's probably even more so a book about power and so that therefore while it's a book about economics and the way business works it's also very much i think at its core it's fair to say a book about politics. And you talk about as a young man leaving college in the late 60s and being horrified by the election of Richard Nixon and seeing a bleak vista stretching out before you and that, as it turned out, that wasn't entirely the case. There was political change. There was great improvement in many ways in the United States, particularly when it came to issues like reproductive rights for women, racial equality, Uh, a bit later on, things like same-sex marriage and issues, issues like that. But equally... There's what we've seen over the last fifty years. There's just what you've described—a movement which probably began in the late, in the late nineteen seventies, picked up speed with the election of Ronald Reagan, really continued on in various forms right up to the present day. And of course, you were in the in the Clinton administration. Um, a lot of people who talk. The, about neoliberalism, and that term is bandied around a little bit too often. Sometimes it seems to me, are as uh, accusatory of the Clinton administration and the accommodation it made with that movement as they are of the hardcore, um, you know, Chicago school economic economists who who drove the drove the Reagan administration.
1: Uh, well, I share some of that criticism. I, I'm proud of what uh, we accomplished in the Clinton administration. I think that the country. was much better off after eight years of bill clinton in charge Uh, but uh, It did I think uh, Not go far enough in terms of helping ordinary people. Uh, The clinton administration certainly did not strengthen trade unions it uh, kind of uh, blindly uh, swallowed the pill of Uh, Global trade international trade as being a good thing without understanding that there are some aspects of global trade that are good uh, And some aspects that could uh, threaten people's jobs. And if you don't do anything about people's jobs, uh, they get they become worse off Uh, uh, The Clinton administration also allowed finance to get too powerful Uh, and I remember uh, Painfully a number of times I was in the White House uh, and uh, the Representatives—you can only call them—the representatives of Wall Street, uh, who were ensconced in the Treasury Department, as they often are, uh, took positions that I thought were appalling. Uh, so, I, you know, I—I I don't mean to engage in a false equivalency between Democrats in the United States and Republicans in the Amer- United States. And there is a big difference. Democrats are much more. Uh, I think, uh, humanitarian and care about uh, the working class to a much greater extent than Republicans do. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I think the Democrats, to some extent, and the Clinton administration is also guilty of this, Hugh, uh, abandoned uh, the working class, uh, did not do nearly enough. Uh, and uh, for that, I, I regret my, my failure to persuade enough of my colleagues and, and even the president. But
0: Jamie Dimon, for example, is a supporter of the of the Democratic Party. And you have an interesting figure about the 2016 election in there, a, a poll of uh, Harvard Business School. Um, I'm not sure if there are graduates or students where the vast majority of them, the vast majority of them were going to vote Democrat. They were going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And that's partly, people talk about culture wars and a cultural thing, and that that's partly down to that. But it's also perhaps down to a, f- a perception that there's not, much difference really between the democrats and the republicans certainly at those kind of elite leadership levels like the clintons
1: yes and 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 at that level uh, i think that uh, and this is where i, I my book really focuses uh, that the biggest difference in politics in american politics and i dare say even uh, coming to be in european politics is less between the left and the right that is uh, those who want to more powerful, bigger government and those who want small government than it is between democracy and oligarchy. That is, people who uh, really do believe in a a representative democracy that is going to be responsive to the needs of average people on the one hand, uh, and an oligarchy that believes in wealth and power and itself and the enhancement of its own wealth and power. On the other hand, that's the big division. Uh, and uh, yes, there are Jamie Dimon corporate Democrats who I would take over and choose over uh, the equivalent Republican corporate Republicans, uh, but uh, the difference is becoming less and less important than is the difference between a democracy and oligarchy.
0: But the Democratic Party, and I think you, you you write about this in the book, has lost touch with a a core part of its, possibly the core part of its constituency, the constituency of any centre-left party in a in a democracy, which is uh, the working classes and the trade unions. Now, trade unions are not what they used to be uh, in the United States. In fact, they're not what they used to be in in lots of places because of the decline in manufacturing in the in the West, in particular. But they have lost touch with that part of their electorate, haven't they? And that kind of fundamentally changes the way in which the the game of politics is played.
1: Absolutely, uh, and I I talk a lot about this in the book that that the democratic party in the united states um, Not ju- it, it didn't just abandon the white working class. That's that was the way uh, the last election uh, Was viewed it really did abandon in many respects the working class altogether uh, And you point out that trade unions uh, have shrunk because manufacturing has shrunk uh, That is not necessarily the case other countries have a larger unionized segment than the United States. In the United States, if you look at the private sector workforce, only 6.4% are unionized. Now, when you get down to something like 6.4%, hue, uh, you might as well, uh, well, they have almost no political power, almost no economic power whatsoever. Uh, now, contrast that with the 1950s and 60s when you had uh, over 35% of Americans uh, who were unionized. And it's not that it was just manufacturing workers. That is, uh, in the United States, of the 6.4% who were unionized, you have many who are service workers. In other countries, more to the point, where you have uh, trade unions, uh, you have uh, retail workers, uh, hospital workers, uh, workers who are in all sorts of service trades who are, who are unionized. Uh, that is not the case in the United States.
0: But isn't it true as well that the, the 35% of workers back in the 1950s, who you reference, many of them were working in manufacturing industry. And because of that and the nature of manufacturing at the time, they had an economic muscle. They had a power that the the remaining trade unions who are more concentrated in service industries or indeed perhaps working for, you know, in certain regards for the state or the federal government,
1: that they who don't have that power. Uh, Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, That is, because you are in manufacturing, does that give you more muscle, more power? Uh, I would say that uh, if you contrasted uh, American manufacturing workers today, and there still are many who are not unionized, uh, they are getting about half the pay uh, adjusted for inflation that American manufacturing workers who were unionized were getting in the 1950s. Uh, The mere fact of being in manufacturing, I'm not sure it gives you uh, as you say muscle uh, I think it it makes it somewhat easier to organize a union because everybody's together at the same factory uh, but uh, whether there is more power uh, just because it's manufacturing I don't I don't know uh, what I can tell you though is that in political terms not only do you lose uh, your economic power at the factory or at the level of the The firm to demand higher wages, but you also lose political muscle and it goes both ways Uh, that is if the Democrats uh, and I think the Democrats could have uh, in the 19 uh, Really starting in the 1970s 80s 90s in the Clinton administration even the Obama administration could have Enacted legislation making it easier to organize uh, trade unions making it easier for workers to decide that they wanted to have a union and to actually have a union. Uh, But neither the Carter nor the Clinton nor the Obama administrations chose uh, to support that kind of legislation. Why not? Uh, Well, I think uh, they didn't in part because uh, so much of the money coming into the parties, uh, coming into the, the candidacies, coming into the election, was coming from big business, coming from uh, the what I call the oligarchy coming from big corporations coming from people like Jamie Dimon.
0: So this landscape that we're in now and trying to achieve the kind of change you're looking for you you describe it as I mean we saw the eruption uh, of the vote for Trump in 2016 which in some ways I think it's fair to say that you characterize as a backlash a populist backlash against some of those forces you describe and what you're proposing is that to f- I suppose, to uh, fight back against that populist backlash is a democratic populist movement, uh, probably represented, it's fair to say, by figures like Bernie Sanders.
1: Uh, yes. I, I think uh, Trump has proven himself to be a Trojan horse for the oligarchs. Uh, he is not and has not been the populist hero of the working class, quite the contrary. Uh, he has given huge tax breaks, not to the average person but to the people at the top. He's given regulatory rollbacks He's got rid of health and safety regulations that were protecting workers uh, But that were inhibiting profits uh, of the big corporations uh, He's uh, he's done everything he can uh, To enhance the wealth and the power of people at the top. Uh, he's not a populist. He's a he's a fake populist uh, bernie sanders and elizabeth warren in the democratic primaries uh, came closest to embodying uh, a kind, a different kind of populism, a, a small d democratic populism, a reformist tradition in the United States that we last saw uh, embodied in, uh, ironically, a Republican named Teddy Roosevelt in 1901, uh, who was elected uh, in the shadow of the last oligarchy in America, uh, the oligarchy that was represented by robber barons and by the gilded age of the 1880s 1890s uh, Where we had the last time we had vast inequality such as we have now Uh, We had just like we have now the degree of corruption uh, uh, making Democracy really a pale reflection of what it could and should be Uh, In fact the parallels between america in the 1880s and 90s and america today are quite important and quite substantial Uh, But the important thing, for the sake of understanding history, is that in America, those 1880s, 1890s uh, robber barons were succeeded by uh, Teddy Roosevelt and a populist reform progressive reaction uh, uh, that was very important in terms of setting the nation back on uh, a reasonable track and avoiding, by the way, uh, fascism, and, and communism, the kinds of uh, isms that infected other nations. Uh, America made capitalism work for the people.
0: Of course, they did that through, uh, among other things, the Populist Party. In other words, a, a third party force at that time. I mean, given the failure of either Sanders or Warren to capture even at what should have been a positive time for them to capture the Democratic nomination in in, in 2020, do you think there might be a need for a third party in the mold of the populists of 120 years ago? Uh,
1: There might be. Uh, The the problem in the American system is that uh, third parties tend to take votes away from one of the two major parties that is most akin to the third party. Uh, So it's always difficult to start a third party in the United States, even uh, in the period we're talking about, the uh, period of Teddy Roosevelt and Uh, And Woodrow Wilson uh, You had uh, a third party that didn't really have a chance of becoming a dominant party, but was uh, Posed a danger to the the party that was the most progressive Uh, Let's put it that way Uh, now Let's go forward uh, in time if it turns out that Donald Trump is reelected Harris the thought Uh, Then there might be a movement toward a third party in the united states comprised of all of the disaffected republicans uh, Who don't like uh, Crony capitalism and corporate welfare and all of the the other ways in which business big business and big government have come together and also uh, Democrats uh, who are Even more opposed uh, to Oligarchy Uh, In other words, it could be uh, that if donald trump is is re-elected, there'd be enough of a political vacuum in terms of the anti-oligarchy of front forces uh, that they might come together in a third party.
0: Why do you think Bernie Sanders failed to uh, win over a majority of Democratic voters in the recent primaries? Although they're still ongoing, I should say.
1: Yeah, the Democrats technically are ongoing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, was leading the pack uh, up until um, the uh, establishment, uh, the oligarchy, uh, got very worried that he actually might uh, get the nomination. And it's at that point that they pulled out all of their ammunition. Uh, they accused him of being a socialist. Uh, they filled uh, the op-ed pages of the major newspapers with attacks on him. Uh, they uh, made it, uh, They made him into a figure that uh, he isn't, but he made, they made him into, into a very scary figure. A character. Uh, and then uh, a couple Elizabeth Warren, uh, who is uh, less frightening, uh, and certainly she doesn't embrace as vociferously as Bernie Sanders did Democratic Socialism. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren became the front runner, but Elizabeth Warren did embrace something that the oligarchy was very afraid of, and that is a tax on wealth. Uh, she supported wealth tax in a great deal, a great deal of detail. Which uh, triggered the reaction by the oligarchy against her. And again, the media, the mainstream media, filled with attacks on Elizabeth Warren. Uh, She was painted as being a radical way out of the tradition of American uh, progressivism. uh, And she uh, succumbed, uh, leaving uh, ultimately the last man standing. And that was a person who is. Uh, someone who the oligarchy feels that it can deal with, uh, that is Joe Biden. i
0: have got to ask you about Joe Biden in a sec. But but first, I suppose, while I'd accept much of that analysis, I do wonder um, about the strategy pursued by Sanders, which he looked for quite some time as if it was going to be successful because he was facing into a divided field. But when that field suddenly was divided no more, when Buttigieg and Klobuchar stepped aside it revealed that he did not; he was not in a position to command a majority of the voters. And, you know, the oldest thing they say in politics is that the first skill you need is to know how to count.
1: Uh, well, I, I look at it a slightly different way uh, because Bernie Sanders, at that time, uh, was uh, was facing uh, two major rivals. One was Elizabeth Warren, and the other was Joe Biden. And Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders split the progressive vote. Uh, those were in the final. Weeks final months actually before uh, super tuesday Uh, The other uh, And and that was uh, that that split above above the progressives was a much more significant split than any other split in the in the democratic party at the time Uh, the other uh, The other factor and I think that this was a failure of bernie sanders was to uh, get the trust and the uh, The vote and support of uh, of the black community Uh, african-americans didn't really know him didn't really support him Uh, African-americans knew joe biden because joe biden had been obviously vice president to barack obama Uh, and uh, It it was almost impossible uh, For bernie sanders to crack that Uh, he he had the same difficulty in 2016 Uh, The the african-americans never really bought into his vision of a progressive america
0: is that because African-Americans, while voting Democrat, are possibly more conservative on some issues than uh, than other Democratic voters?
1: Well, they're certainly more conservative on, on, on a lot of social issues, uh, but I think that it might have been possible. In fact, it, it must be possible. The only way a progressive is ever going to become president is creating a coalition between... Uh, poor and working-class blacks and poor and working-class whites and Latinos. Uh, That is absolutely necessary. That multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-class coalition uh, is the only way uh, there is going to be enough power to overcome oligarchy in America. Uh, Bernie Sanders had a shot, he had two shots, uh, and he didn't quite pull it off.
0: I look at Joe Biden and I see a candidate who is explicitly running on the basis of a return to values of the Obama administration of which he was a part. And before that, indeed, a certain type of politics in the Senate, which he was a member of for for many years as well. Those are both things which you are explicitly critical of in the book. Uh, A Biden that takes you back to uh, 1995, is not going to be much of a success in your book, is it?
1: No. uh, If Biden actually does stand for a return to, quote-unquote, normalcy, uh, and that normalcy was the normalcy that ultimately got us Donald Trump, uh, then Biden uh, would not be a terribly good candidate and and probably not a terribly good president. Uh, But uh, that's not the full story of Joe Biden, and I want to just defend him a bit here because uh, certainly in the last month and a half, Uh, He has worked closely with Bernie Sanders and Has come out with a set of policies that sound much more progressive than anything. Joe Biden uh, had stood for before Uh, now that may be Because Joe Biden wants to attract progressives knows that he has got to get the progressive vote and young people enthusiastically Enthusiastically behind him if he has any chance of winning, but I think it's also because uh, He is enough and shrewd enough politician uh, then he knows that if he wants to actually have a governing coalition uh, capable of uh, enabling him to do anything and also become reelected, uh, he's got to maintain that progressive vote. And so that on issues like Medicare for All, a uh, Green New Deal, uh, the uh, free public higher education, uh, a, a minimum wage, uh, Joe Biden has actually come a long way.
0: What impact is the COVID-19 pandemic and the associated economic crisis having on the issues which you describe in the book and on the political landscape in the run-up to this election this year?
1: Well, sadly and tragically, Hugh, uh, the issues that I point up in the book have been uh, made even more sharply uh, realised and and come into uh, sharper relief because of the COVID-19 crisis. not only do we see that it's the poor and the working class and people of color who have succumbed to the disease uh, more than uh, people who are wealthy and upper middle class, uh, but we also see that in terms of getting government help, uh, it's been the poor and the working class and people of color who have come out on the on the short end. Uh, it's the big corporations that have been bailed out, the banks that have got bailed out, uh, the Uh, the wealthy who've got tax breaks, $135 billion in tax breaks hidden in one of those COVID-19 pieces of legislation. Uh, You see, you you can't just change the power structure because you have a national health emergency. The power structure is still there. And the power structure is still going to demand uh, that it be given priority uh, and that if there is going to be sacrifice, sadly, the sacrifices fall on the most vulnerable, uh, and that's why it's so urgent to change that power structure.
0: Finally, I, I wonder how much of this is due to a certain kind of American exceptionalism. Some of the some of the factors which you described there will be familiar to many of us in many countries in terms of the way that politics has developed over the last the last number of decades but they seem more extreme in the united states the the absence of anything like a kind of a national health service the absence of things which are regarded as fundamental in other countries like some kind of social safety net um sick pay maternity leave all those all those types of things and then we look at the kind of the the high drama of politics as represented, I think, above all else these days by, by Donald Trump as well. Is there something particular about the American experience or American history, or even the, maybe the way that the American political system is set up with its multitude of checks and balances, its complex federal system that, that has brought the country to this place it's in at the moment?
1: I think the answer is yes. Uh, American exceptionalism is real. Uh, and uh, it is not only positive. Uh, it is also, I think, we could see in this pandemic, exceptionalism means some very, very uh, difficult things for many, many people. America has socialism, but we have socialism for the rich. Uh, we have the harshest form of capitalism uh, for most people. Uh, and part of that goes right back to the beginnings. I mean, the origin of America, remember, the origin of the country is a revolt. I against centralized authority, against government. Uh, American individualism is so deeply implanted in the country as an ideology. Uh, John Locke lives in America uh, in a way that uh, John Locke doesn't live in any other uh, advanced country. Uh, And that individualism, in many respects, is a strength uh, of the country. It has been a strength with regard to uh, the emphasis on freedom and liberty uh, but it becomes a weakness uh, in terms of the necessity for government to act in certain ways and providing safety nets. Uh, you're absolutely right. We are the only advanced nation that has no no universal health care, uh, nothing nothing even uh, approaching universal health care. We don't have paid sick leave. Uh, if you can believe it, I, I talked to my friends in other countries they say you, you I can't, why can't, you mean you don't have paid sick leave? no. Uh, we don't we don't have paid uh, family leave we don't have uh any kind of uh real uh, uh, unemployment benefits for people who lose their job through no fault of their own we have unemployment insurance from 1938 which uh, as a system is completely uh, anachronistic uh, given the, the problems that people have today uh and uh, we have a system of at-will employment that is employers can fire anybody uh, for no reason. Uh, well, no other country that I know of uh, has uh, this kind of uh, uh, you can be fired for no reason at all. Uh, you have no interest in your job, you have no stake in your job. Uh, 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 American exceptionalism uh, has, in this pandemic, uh, caused uh, an extraordinary degree of suffering, more suffering, I dare say, uh, than in other advanced countries. Uh, and even to some extent, the haphazard response to the pandemic, while, uh, while falling at Donald Trump's feet, I mean, Donald Trump uh, has no right to be president. He, he's not a president in any real meaning of the term. Uh, but there are deeper factors. There's no public health system in the United States. We don't have a public health system. We have, we have a, a little skeleton crew uh, called the Centers for Disease Control uh, that have never been properly funded. And there is simply nothing there.
0: The book is called The System, Who Rigged It and How We Fix It. Uh, It's by Robert Reich. You can get it in all good bookshops. And I think in Ireland, anyway, all good bookshops are reopening, having been closed for three months on uh, June the 8th. So in a week's time or so, of course, you can presumably get it online as well. Robert, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us today.
1: Well, Hugh, it was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That's all for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. If you would like to support this podcast and the journalism of the Irish Times, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for an introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you do want to get in touch with us, we will be delighted to hear from you. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.